This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, Glenn Cole is a guest once again. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's good. So today, we're going to be talking through something that struck my interest when Glenn and I were talking a while ago. I don't know when it was, a week or two ago that we were talking, and you mentioned this uh, sermon that you had done at your church. Actually, we're sitting in his office at this church right now, and Glenn, you mentioned that you had talked through the storyline of the Lamb throughout the Scriptures. Yeah, I actually turned it into a sermon series Mm -hmm. uh, and just looked at and traced the theme of the Lamb uh, that we see all throughout the Scriptures from really from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And that struck my interest. And so today, myself with my listeners are going to be learning from you, mostly. I've got a few thoughts to chip in, but I really am looking forward to hearing how you trace this theme throughout the Scriptures. And you also mentioned that there were other themes. I guess we'll touch on those a little bit later. But that really is a great way to approach the Scriptures, is to see the unity through the diversity of the scriptures that we have. Yeah, and that's exactly why I decided to do that sermon series, was because uh, we can have a tendency to dwell so much in the details. Uh, The Bible is so rich uh, that we end up with our favorite parts of it, and we can dwell so much on an individual passage of scripture or even a verse, but then forget about what is the whole of the Bible about. Yeah, I was talking with one of our listeners yesterday, and she was talking about the value of reading entire books at a time, not just picking out favorite little scriptures or memorizing little sections, but understanding the scope of each book. But here we're going to be looking at the scope of this collection of books. So how about we just jump into it? How can you start us off? Well, I think I would start off just to give us some context about the whole of the Bible as you were talking about. The Bible is a collection of books. We can think about it as a library, but it's a library that has a unified theme. Uh, We can't pull one thing out uh, without the rest of it tumbling down, uh, so to speak. And Jesus even gives us this in Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus has been resurrected. He meets the the people, the two disciples who are on their way to that little town of uh, Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 27, This is referring to Jesus. He says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the thing that we have to understand is that the Bible, the whole of the Bible, is ultimately, it's about Christ, it's about his story, and he has written us into that story rather than the other way around. We we tend Mm -hmm. to make ourselves the star of our life movie, and Jesus is a supporting character. It's actually the other way around. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the star, and uh, we have a a role, and he's written us into it. But the Bible itself is about Jesus. It's about Christ. When I was a young believer, this scripture caught my attention because it says that Jesus did interpret to them all the scriptures, the things about himself— but it doesn't tell us what he told them, how he did that. And so that that spurred me to say, well, I want to start doing this. And so what we're doing today is exactly that. We're looking at how the scriptures point us to Jesus, all the things concerning him. Yeah. 
And it doesn't mean that you can take every single individual verse and say, okay, this is about Jesus, but the the whole of the story concerns him. It's about God's plan of redemption, Mm -hmm. and he redeemed us through Jesus, and so we're going to find Jesus pretty much wherever we look in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had mentioned before about the various themes. Uh, This is not the only thing uh, that we find in the Bible. It's not the only way that we can interpret things. The Bible, as I said before, is so rich that we find things that run throughout the whole of the Scripture. You can trace a theme of, uh, about the sovereign nature of God. God is in control. He rules everything. You cannot uh, read really a single chapter of any book of the Bible where you miss God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, all of these things uh, about His nature and His character. Man's rebellion and sin against God is a recurring theme, but the theme that goes along with that is God's unfolding plan of how he's going to redeem man, really just not man, but all of creation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have in my notes here is that Jesus didn't come just to save souls or to have a personal relationship with us. He came to save the whole world and mm-hmm. the, the creation. Yeah, amen. And some of the other themes that we see, we could trace a theme of, or a motif, if that works for you, the theme of, a, of the garden Uh, We see a garden repeatedly coming up in scriptures. Uh, The garden, of course, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but yet at the very end in Revelation, the new creation is described in the way of a a garden. The tree of life is there, uh, the river, the water, all of these things we can trace throughout the whole of the scripture. Yeah, let me say quickly just something about the garden motif and how it appears. I came across this in a non-Christian article talking about the word paradise, and I've mentioned it earlier that it's when Jesus says on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He says that to the criminal who's next to him, and that word paradise, I've said, it's not Aramaic, it's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's actually Persian, and I read an article maybe a week ago that told me a little bit more about that, and it said this, I'll just read what was in this article, our word paradise is derived from the old Iranian word pyradiaza, which roughly translates to celestial garden. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Very. Paradiaza. So the celestial garden or the king's garden, that's what paradise is, and that really helps me understand that. Maybe we can do one later on the theme of the garden throughout Scripture as well to take a closer look at what it means and how it pops up. Well, I think that's great. Uh, these kind of things help us to understand uh, some of the Scripture. What was God doing in the garden? He was essentially setting up for himself a temple, a place where he would dwell with his people. Mm-hmm. And that's um, Adam and Eve were driven out, but God is restoring that, uh, and so that he would have a garden and a place to dwell with his people. That's what we see in Revelation. So yeah, I think it's really helpful. Yeah, amen. Well, I look forward to doing that one a little bit later on. One of the things, uh, too, that I wanted to mention is uh, when we talk about these themes that run throughout Scripture, it's not a way to decode the Bible. We don't need to look for secret messages Mm -hmm. or anything. It's uh, just a way that the Scripture hangs together. Uh, It's a way God has put these things together to help us in our understanding. And if you think about how the Bible was written, many different authors over hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet there is this unified theme that runs throughout. Yes, and so today, yeah, it's going to be nice to look at this story of the Lamb and how 
everything that we see in the Old Testament and comes up into the New Testament, pointing to the true Lamb of God. And we see an example of this early on, Mike. We'll just go ahead and start in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not referring to a lamb specifically, but it's something that you can't understand about the lamb without understanding this theme as well, and that's the theme of substitution. That's the whole purpose of the lamb in Scripture is uh, to be a substitute for something else. And what we see in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God covers their nakedness. It says he covered them with the skin of an animal. We don't know if it was a lamb. It was some kind of animal Mm -hmm. uh, that God sacrificed to cover them, essentially to cover their sin. So in this, the other theme that runs right along parallel with the story of the Lamb is the theme of substitution. So when we talk about these different things, we'll talk about the sacrifice of Isaac, we'll talk about the Passover Lamb. Uh, All of these cases and instances of the Lamb uh, was to be a substitute Mm -hmm. for us. Yeah, there in Genesis we see that something has to die in order to cover man's shame. Yeah and his sin. It is something that we should remark on, and therefore I'd say remarkable, (laughs) that so early on in the story of the redemption of man is the necessity of the death of some animal to cover that sin. And it just speaks to God's mercy and his grace and his love for us, that he, even in the midst of rebellion, uh, he he does what is necessary to cover us. Yeah, amen. So let's dig into it. Well, uh, Mike, just to set this up to help us um, pace along and people um, pay attention as we go through, we can tell the story really in four chapters, probably a whole lot more than four. These are the ones that I've pulled out uh, in my sermon series just to help us see they're not the only places in the Scripture where we see the instance of the Lamb, but they really are indicative. Um, And so as we go through, I've labeled these the lamb and the thorns, that's the first one that we'll talk about. And the second one is the lamb and the way out. The third chapter, if you will, is the lamb for a nation, the lamb for the whole world. And then the fourth one is the lamb and the throne. Mm-hmm. And that will take us literally from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Yeah, great. That's really good. So why don't we talk about first the lamb and the thorns? Mm-hmm. And this uh, comes from Genesis 22 the first 14 verses. Mike, you want to read that? Yes, I will. Let's start. So this is Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there 
and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay him. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed that as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is such a great story. It's uh, so indicative of what God does for us. Uh, Keeping in mind that uh, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that Mm -hmm. his descendants would be as numerous as the stars or the, the dust of the ground, and yet God is asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, who was called the child of promise. Mm-hmm. And so this had to be very confusing to Abraham, and yet he's going to be obedient and do what the Lord asks. Mm-hmm. And what we see is that the Lord actually provides what's required. Now, uh, one of the things I want to take a, a short aside, some of the ways that we should not understand this account, and I've heard these mentioned before, and they're really not helpful, and I'll explain why. But some of the ways not to understand this story, uh, we shouldn't take away that what God is calling us to do is to somehow discover the thing that's most precious to us, just like Isaac was to Abraham, what's most precious to us, and now we're to offer it up to God. I've heard that taught before. One other thing that I've heard taught is that God wants to give us something better in our life, so we have to let go of whatever we're clinging to first. And I think that what God really wants us to see in this account is the greater purpose, the bigger purpose. It's not so much about us letting go of what's precious to us. What God was doing was preparing Israel to see, and also He was preparing us to see that He, God the Father, was willing to sacrifice what was most important to Him for us. Yeah, that's a very good point, because people that have been listening to this podcast recently will know that I've mentioned hedonism quite a bit, which is self-focus, and really we need to be looking at him and his character and what he's revealing about himself. Yeah, and because just spend just a moment thinking about that teaching, how to to apply this, uh, the application part of this story. If it's now you've got to go find out what's most precious to you offer that up to God. Uh, We can literally chase our spiritual tales, Mm. trying to figure out what is it that's most precious. God revealed this to me, and now I'm going to offer it up to you. And we lose the focus on something was done for us, rather than us trying to do something for God. Yeah, amen. Uh, Right now I want to take another aside. I think this is two asides in a row. (laughs) But I want to talk about Moriah and how it figures into this theme of the Lamb. And I'll highlight a few things in what I just read in Genesis chapter 22 and then talk about some other scriptures. Uh, It's important to note that God said to Abraham that he should go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice there on one of the mountains that God was going to show him. Abraham was told very specifically to go to a place, and it was actually uh, about three days away. On the third day, they finally got to where they were going, so they had to spend two nights on the road. So it wasn't someplace close, and it was a very specific place that God told Abraham to go to. 
And in verse 4 of Genesis 22, it says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw this place in the distance. So it's a specific place. And all of this happens up on this mountain of the Lord, it says in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14. This is the mountain of the Lord. And this is where Abraham looked up and he saw this ram with its horns caught in the thicket, in the thorn bushes there. And this is on Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is later the place where the Jebusites have settled, and the Jebusites inhabit Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is actually up on Mount Moriah. And earlier, Gad had come. He was a prophet of the Lord, had come to David. And well, let me see. In First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18, it says, The angel of the Lord ordered Gad, one of the prophets, to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David builds an altar where the Jebusite is, and this turns out to be up on Mount Moriah, because in Second Chronicles chapter 3 we read, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. This was on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. So all of this happens. The uh, sacrifice of Abraham is on Mount Moriah, somewhere on Mount Moriah. And then David is told by the Lord to go and build an altar on Mount Moriah. And then later, that's where the temple is built and the city of David is built. The, the city of Zion is on Mount Moriah. And this is where Jesus then later is crucified. Now, people don't know exactly where Golgotha was exactly, but it's somewhere up on Mount Moriah. The city of David is a walled city, and that's up on the very top. And Golgotha is somewhere, this place of the skull is somewhere outside the city gates, but still up on that same hill or mountain. They call it a mountain, but it's really kind of a tall hill. And that's what we're going to come back to in a little bit, I think, as we talk about some other lambs we see in the scripture, that it's important that Jesus was sacrificed outside of the city gates. But from everything in the scriptures that I can see and from teachers that I trust, it looks like it's all happening in the same place. That's why it's really important to understand the geography. God doesn't uh, leave these things to chance, Mm -hmm. that they are actually indicative of how he is going to do everything that he says he's going to do. Mm -hmm. So let's continue on with looking at the lamb and the thorns. Yeah, let's just talk about that. Here, uh, Abraham turns around and he sees this ram, and it's got his head caught by its horns, and it's caught in a thicket. It's caught in this thorny thicket, which is such an obvious type and shadow of Jesus mm-hmm. later yeah. uh, wearing the crown of thorns that was thrust upon his head. And so we have this sacrificial lamb with its head in thorns uh, that is just pointing ahead to what Jesus would do for us in a much, much greater way. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about the the mountain of Moriah, Abraham was led there by God. Isaac walked up the mountain carrying the wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the detail in this story is really important. Isaac was the one who actually bore the wood on his back. And it, again, it just points ahead to the day when God the Father would walk his own son up that same hill mm-hmm. on Mount Moriah. The son, the son of God, would carry the wood on his back, and he would be laid upon that wood and would be sacrificed for us. Mm-hmm. Unlike Isaac, there would not be a last second reprieve. God stayed the hand of Abraham, called out to him 
just before he was about to plunge the knife. But uh, for God's only son, there would be no last second reprieve. Mm-hmm. And so we're beginning to see the storyline of the lamb and of substitution. There are so many parallels between this, and it's intentional. Um, God provided a sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, here in Genesis 22, God provides for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. He provides what's needed. The ram's life was sacrificed in order to save Isaac's life, and it points ahead to when God would provide a lamb, this time not as a substitute just for Isaac, but as a substitute for you, for the listeners, for everybody, for the whole world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to point something out, too. The Passover lamb was to be a year old, and so when we think about a lamb, we think of a newborn, like a little tottering, little cute little lamb, or sometimes we see statues of the shepherd with a little lamb over his shoulders, but a one-year-old lamb is grown up, it's mature, and this ram that is found up on Mount Moriah has horns, so it's a mature animal, And so we need to get in our mind, it's not just some little lamb. Jesus himself was in his full maturity when he was sacrificed. Yeah, that's right. So I need to be very careful myself about not clinging to some romantic idea of Jesus as a little, tiny, newborn lamb. He's actually mature, and even Isaac himself was mature. So we need to keep in mind how God reveals these things, not the way perhaps they've been depicted in the arts throughout the ages. Yeah. So let's move on to chapter 2. Yep. Uh, So the first one was the lamb and the thorns. The the second chapter that we can consider is the lamb and the way out, and we're going to look at Exodus 12. But let me set it up this way. Before we've been rescued in Christ, before anybody receives the salvation by faith, we're all under the weight of sin, and that's true of everybody. We're under the weight of sin, and we're rescued out of that Just as in Exodus, the people of Israel were under the weight of bondage uh, in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were slaves. They were being held. But God provided a rescue for them. And earlier in Exodus, in chapter 3, I'll just go ahead and read these two verses here. Uh, Chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what we see in Exodus, uh, of course, this is when we get the stories about the plagues and God sending the plagues uh, upon the Egyptians. And if you notice the plagues, they escalate. There's this series of plagues that start with blood of the Nile, but it begins to escalate and it affects greater and greater portions of Egypt. And what he was doing, what God was doing, was that he was demonstrating that he, and not all the false gods of the Egyptians, he's God of everything. He's God of the water, he's God of the crops, he's God of the animals, he's God of the sun. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's even God of their bodies. Uh, One of the plagues is boils that occur on their bodies, Uh, God is also God of the firstborn. And in that culture, in ancient Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh, the the king, he was thought to be divine. He was thought to be a god. Mm -hmm. But what is shown in these plagues is that Pharaoh was unable to protect the firstborn of the Egyptians. Uh, He did not have any power whatsoever to save. Mm -hmm. But God saved the whole nation of Israel and he protected them from this plague of the death of the firstborn. 
So, Mike, why don't we go ahead and read this to give us some context, Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, and then down in verses 7 through 13. Yep, okay, so Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the raw meat or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, the head, the legs, and the inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, and the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Yeah, this can be a confusing passage to a lot of us when we first read that. But in the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn, and not just the firstborn of humans, it's the firstborn, as we've heard, it's the firstborn of beasts, everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But God provides a way of protection for Israel. God says, I'm going to do this. Notice that he also says, I'm the Lord, uh, not Pharaoh, I'm God, uh, but I'm going to provide a way for you to be protected, for you to protect your firstborn, but it's really unusual the way God's going to do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says, take some of the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts and lentils of your houses, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, no plague will befall you or destroy you. So in order for the Israelites to be protected in order for the judgment of this angel of death that was going to come, for, in order for that judgment to pass over them, something had to die. This year-old lamb that they were to take in, keep for 14 days, uh, that lamb had to die. And the thing that uh, we should understand here is that either the lamb died or some of the people in that household were going to die. Mm-hmm. This is what God said. There has to be the substitute blood has to be shed. And the blood of that lamb was needed to be placed strategically at the entryway of the home uh, to signify this was a symbol that the people had faith in God's word of protection. He gave them instructions to do this. didn't matter how odd the instructions may have seemed, but the people who followed the, the instructions by faith, the angel of death passed over. And what the blood of the lamb would have done is it would have been a very vivid reminder that a life had to be sacrificed in order to protect those who were in the home. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I said, well, I wonder why they call it the Passover, because it seemed like such a funny word, but it's just exactly what it is. It's when God passed over these houses. And so just even saying the word 
let's celebrate the Passover or remember the Passover. It's remembering that he did not visit upon his people the death that was coming to all others who were not his people. Yeah, and that is why I I call this chapter The the Lamb and the Way Out. Uh, This was just before they were released out of bondage in Egypt, and this was the way that God provided protection for them. This substitution of a lamb, the shedding of its blood in order for those who were in inside by faith were protected, and the death that was coming uh, was not visited on them. It didn't affect them. Yeah, amen. Well, let's move on then to what you've entitled this third chapter, The Lamb for a Nation and the Lamb for the Whole World. Yeah, and this comes from uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, of course, uh, is the account of all the the ceremonial and sacrificial laws it can be really confusing and detailed, and uh, it can put a lot of people to sleep, especially if you're reading it at night. Uh, but especially in Leviticus 16 is where we see this other example of a lamb, and uh, Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. I think a lot of us are familiar with that. Uh, we might be more familiar with it if we call it Yom Kippur, it is the, the Hebrew day of atonement when God had said, you're going to take these lambs uh, as sacrifices for your sin, and also that your sins will be carried away from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll say something right now about atonement. I remember hearing, and I've heard it quite a bit, this word atonement, some people saying it means at one meant, sort of being at one with God, but actually I think it is more than that. And it helps me to think of this word meaning compensation. It's a day of making right, of balancing scales, of making a sacrifice that compensates for our sin. It's not just one month. There's a price that's paid in order to become right with God again. That's right. Yeah, and and I think that uh, it's helpful. The at-one-ment notion is helpful to get us mm-hmm. thinking about what this actually means, but it doesn't go quite far enough, to, right. like you said, in, in order for us to be at one with God is that something had to be sacrificed. There had to be something that uh, stood in our place to do that. Yeah, there's a price to be paid. Uh, There must be a price to be paid. So I'll start reading here in Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Now, skipping down a little bit to verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. 
Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. All right. Uh, I know a lot of our eyes begin to glaze over on all of these details. It can be... uh, really confusing, and why is all of this going on? Um, If you were listening closely, how many times did you hear the word blood Mm -hmm. in here? Aaron's going to take the blood on its finger, he's going to sprinkle it, it's on its altar, it's on the tent of meeting of itself, it's on Aaron himself. So one of the things that might be helpful is just to talk about, under the sacrificial system, what God was saying is, I'm giving you this system that is to point ahead to something that I'm going to do later. But for right now, you need to understand that in order for sins to be atoned for, this is what has to happen. And he's describing to Moses how this is to be done. Once a year, two lambs were to be brought before, and then the high priest, in this case Aaron, uh, would sacrifice one of those lambs, and its blood would be sprinkled on the altar as essentially a cleansing agent. Mm -hmm. And it represented that the, the sins of the people would have been atoned for. But here's this second lamb. And what happened to to this lamb? Well, Aaron would literally lay his hands on the head of this lamb, upon this animal, and he would confess the sins of the people over it, all the sins of the people. And we have to understand that in confessing the sins, this was not a, I lay my hands on and 10 seconds later I'm done. Uh, This would have taken some time as he confessed all the sins of the people, the idolatry, the murder, the stealing, all of this. Mm -hmm. But then the lamb uh, wasn't sacrificed at that point. It was carried out. It was led outside the camp into the wilderness. Symbolically, the sins of the people being carried with this lamb, literally the sins of the people being born on this one lamb. Now, in the case of Isaac, I think this is interesting to note. In the case of Isaac, God provided a lamb that served as a, a substitute for one person, a ram for Isaac. Yeah. Now, for the people of Israel at the Passover, a lamb was sacrificed for essentially the salvation of an entire family. Whoever was in that household uh, would have been protected. Yes, it was protecting the firstborn, but think about the importance of the firstborn in that day and time. Now, uh, what's happening on the Day of Atonement, a lamb was sacrificed, its blood would cover the sins, not just of one person, not just a family, but this was for the whole nation. Yeah. One day a year, a lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation. And, mm-hmm. and so here, we're beginning to reach a pinnacle as we go from one person to a family to a nation. Now we can talk about the lamb for the whole world, not just for a nation, but now the lamb for the whole world. And we reach the climax of this in the Gospel of John. Uh, we, we jump ahead all the way from Leviticus to the Gospel of John, and John writes in John 1, 29, 
The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, amen. And so this was not, uh, John was not just saying, Jesus takes away my sin. It's not just a sin of one person, not just of a family, not even just a nation, not just the nation of Israel. But what John the Baptist was declaring is, here's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the whole world. So what stands out here to me is that John the Baptist is really fulfilling a function very much like an Old Testament prophet. He is speaking prophetically. There when Jesus is just coming onto the public stage already, this idea is there, clearly stated, that he is the Lamb of God, and he's there to take away sin for everyone. Yeah, and the thing that we have to understand is when John says this, he's, uh, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's coming to take away the sin of the whole world. We have to understand what that really means, that our sin has so separated us from God that there has to be something that atones for, that covers that, that would remove that sin for us. And so God himself is going to provide what is necessary. John's ministry, John the Baptist, his ministry was one of repentance, uh, being baptized for repentance. And then he makes this declaration, this is how this is going to take effect. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this Lamb of God, he's going to take away the sin of the whole world. And so God provides the sacrifice that's needed in our place. We read later in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, for our sake, God made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does Jesus, as the Lamb of God, his sacrifice and his blood cover and remove our sin, but in that exchange, he also gives us his righteousness. Amen. So in the final part of this third chapter, as we're talking about the Lamb for the whole world, we see that Jesus came to be and serve as our sacrifice, as our substitute. But it's interesting because Scripture also refers to him as the high priest. Aaron as the high priest would be the one who would actually sacrifice the animal. But Jesus is our substitution. He is the one who sacrifices his life, but he's also described as our high priest. Mm -hmm. So the place of Jesus' crucifixion being outside the camp... This was, it's an important distinction to make. It's where the lamb had the sins of the people placed on it. It was led out outside the camp into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people with it. And Jesus did the same thing. He was led outside, willingly led outside of the camp, bearing our sins with him. And uh, the scriptures tell us how far has he removed our sins from us, as far as the east is from the west. We can't imagine. Yeah, amen. So Jesus was our sacrifice, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said, but Scripture also refers to him as our high priest. Uh, Mike, in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, do you want to read that? Yeah, sure. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. Yeah, so not only is Jesus uh, called the Lamb of God, but He's also called our High Priest. Mm-hmm. I'll make a connection back to what we were talking about in the, the Passover Lamb, that here, uh, either the Lamb of God died, or we died. That is the, the natural result of our sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what Paul says in Romans. So either the Lamb of God, either Jesus died or we die. And the good news is, is that He has died for us, the innocent, the righteous, dying for the guilty, and the guilty being declared innocent and given His righteousness. It's just this wonderful exchange that we see. Amen. And it reminds me of something that I heard a a while ago, that when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Lord, if it's at all possible, take this away from me. Not my will, your will be done. He could not save Himself and save others. It was one or the other. He had to die in order for others to be saved. That's right. And uh, Jesus even says he does so willingly. Mm -hmm. It's not that somebody uh, took him by force, that he laid down his life willingly for us. Yeah, amen. And on the cross, he gave up his spirit. He surrendered his spirit. He was even in charge of that. He chose the time when he was going to surrender and let go. As soon as he said, it's finished, as soon as all the work was done, then he gave up his spirit. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And we might think that at the end of this chapter, that now the theme of the Lamb is over in the Scripture, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, the best part is yet to come. And we see that in Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw a Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out, into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Yeah, so here in Revelation chapter 5, this is the revelation by Jesus Christ given to John. Uh, Starting in verse 6, it's the first time that John mentions anything about Jesus as the Lamb. Uh, Let's keep in mind that there is a lot of symbolism uh, in the revelation uh, that John writes, but here he refers to Jesus as the Lamb. He says, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it's not until chapter 5 that John mentions this first instance of the Lamb, but then after that, John really takes off mm-hmm. in the description. Between chapter 5 and then the end of Revelation in chapter 22, John mentions Jesus as the Lamb of God another 27 times. Uh, so this obviously this imagery is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. John writes that this Lamb that he saw, it looked like it had been slain, but now it's being declared as the one who's worthy to receive power. We read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, uh, the people are saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So John describes the Lamb in language that is straight out of Psalm 23. How does Psalm 23 begins? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, John writes, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Mm-hmm. So we have the Lamb and also as the shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So we see that Jesus is described as the sacrificial Lamb, but He's also the high priest. He's the Lamb, but He's also our shepherd. He's also our substitute, but our Lord. Yeah, yeah, amen. So, Mike, as we kind of enter the home stretch of all of this, for the nation of Israel earlier in this sacrificial system, what God was teaching them is that the sacrifice of lambs was to show them a very real need they had for their sins to be covered, to be atoned for, that an innocent life, a life that had no spot or blemish, uh, that life had to stand in their place. But in a very real way, the sacrifice of the lambs lifted their eyes off themselves and to the promise of the Messiah. We have to remember that there was the promise of one who would come to redeem uh, the nation of Israel, but also the whole world. That theme runs throughout Scripture as well. And so this sacrificial system was supposed to lift their eyes off themselves to that promise of the Messiah, the, the perfect Lamb, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the whole world. And so the great news is that we're not Israel anymore. We're not looking ahead to the time when the true Lamb of God would come because He's already come. He's here. We've just read the the account and talked about the account of Jesus' crucifixion as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think, Mike, the, the theme of the Lamb throughout Scriptures is clear. We also have to remember that what's clear is that we've sinned against God, all of us, but God provided a way that our relationship with Him would be restored so that our sins can be covered, uh, can be atoned for, can be removed from us as far as the East is from the West, uh, so that we won't be eternally condemned. And that way that God provided is through the sacrifice of a lamb and the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, "...without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins." Uh, But this wasn't just any lamb. It wasn't a lamb that we've picked out of a flock. It was God's son, his only son, whom he loved. And Jesus himself became for us, for us all. He became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, And I always say, anytime that I teach or preach this, that he takes away the sin of the whole world, your sins and my sins. So what happens at the end? Have we reached the end of the theme of the Lamb of God? Well, (laughs) no, there really isn't an end. Scripture promises all of us that those who are in Christ, we will one day, just like the the elders, will stand before the throne on which the Lamb sits. And we will be in... It's hard to imagine. God even says that uh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. So we're going to stand in the glorious presence of the Lamb of God. Our bodies, minds, soul, our whole being will be presented to Him, faultless and blameless, because of the blood that He shed for us. And the great news is, is that we will all sing. Uh, every tongue, tribe, nation, language imaginable will sing together, uh, just as John writes in Revelation 19.6, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Yeah, amen. That is a super good study, and it brings up so many other thoughts that I have about the life that Jesus lives right now. In Revelation there, he looks like a lamb that was slain, and yet he's alive. 
when Jesus was resurrected, he still had the wounds in him from the cross. There were still holes in his hands or in his wrists and in his side and in his feet, but he wasn't bleeding. As a matter of fact, the wound was open enough that somebody could stick their hand up inside there. So that shows me that he's no longer living a life that's just based on human blood. He's been bled out, but he's alive eternally now. There's some other life motivating him, and that just gives me hope that this new life to come is really, really different from the one we live now. And because of what he's done, we are going to enter into that eternal life in the age to come. And like you were just saying, it's just hard to imagine what it's going to be like, but we're promised that we are going to be doing that in the future with him. Two things that I would say about that. Uh, One is that our life will be qualitatively different than what it is now. It's not just going to be a better version of today. It's not going to be like it's spring all the time. It's just we can't imagine how much better our life is going to be. It will be infinitely better than what it is now. So that's one thing to say about that. The other thing that you touched on is that we have to understand that we will have bodies yeah. In this resurrected life, we won't be spirits just floating around on clouds, playing harps or whatever. We will be embodied, uh, and that is part of what God is doing in restoring all of this. This is why Jesus came, to restore all of creation. And in this new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, we will have these glorified bodies as well. Yeah, uh, And so that is what the, the hope is. Uh, our decaying bodies as they are now are going to be completely restored. Yeah. And just like you said, uh, Scripture teaches uh, that we will have bodies just like Jesus' glorified body. Mm-hmm. Amen. So just to close it up, because it looks like we could keep talking about various things, but we need to end somewhere. The thing that I want to underscore is that God himself has made a way for us to be restored to him. He himself is providing the sacrifice that is necessary not only to cover sin, but actually to remove sin completely, ultimately, through Christ and his sacrifice. And if we don't remember that, that can turn into a lack of gratitude. We should always be thankful, just really, really thankful to God that he has done it. Yeah, and that's when we think about that this was all of God's plan, this was Mm -hmm. not any of our doing, God set this in motion. He's the one that did every single part of it for us, and He gives us freely Mm -hmm. this eternal life in Him. Yeah, I think that's right, that we should have that wellspring of gratitude that just flows up within us, just how amazing it is. And humility, because there's nothing that we could have done. He's done it all. That's right. We can't boast in any of our own work. Amen. There is no boasting. Glenn, thank you very, very much. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Giving us the time. Yep, and I'm looking forward to sometime in the future looking at some of these other themes that run through the scriptures. And so I'll address our listeners now, friends. Until next time, I pray that the Lord will help these lessons to sink deep inside you. And I pray that you will always seek his pathways and his righteousness. His pathways are good, and they always lead to rest for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.